good morning again, and uh, let me lead us in prayer as we come to look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn to your Word. Forbid it, Lord, that we may boast in anything but Jesus Christ and his cross. Help me to preach your Word faithfully and clearly, and humble our hearts that we may cast aside any pride or worldly wisdom by your Spirit, help us to view your church and its leaders rightly in the lens of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you help a proud church? How do you help a proud church? It is a sad reality that pride remains a common feature of many churches affecting both members and leaders. It's very easy for a church to take its eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross and start evaluating its value and its successfulness based on other factors instead, like how many people are attending, or how impressive the music is, or the liturgy, or how magnificent the building is, or how good the preaching is. Perhaps in our context, as we greet a visitor, we might be tempted to introduce our church in this way. You know, did you know that this is the oldest church in Southeast Asia? Did you know we'll soon have a bishop as our pastor? Did you know we've got several hundred members in our congregation? Did you know that even the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Prince of England came to visit this very church? Built at the very heart of Penang, one of the most historic and beautiful parts of Malaysia. And of course, all those things may be true, but we may be tempted to say them out of a sense of pride and superiority, that, that, that this church and its leaders is, is more significant, more important, more influential than other churches. And so we puff up our ego as we look down on others. Uh, the same thing can easily happen in the ministries that we lead. We can easily start thinking to ourselves, well, we're more active, we're more committed, we're more successful, more numerous than those ministries. And so we start to pat ourselves on the back and think, we're something, we've made it, especially compared to those ministries that are not nearly as successful or committed as ours. It's pride, and it can so easily infect a church. Well, that is what's going on in the church at Corinth. The city of Corinth was a major city in the Roman world. It was an important trading center. It was known for its philosophy and eloquent speakers. It was a sophisticated city. And those values had penetrated into the church that the Christians had brought in the values and human wisdom of the world around them into the church, and it had made them proud and made them divided they had begun to divide themselves into factions as the, the church lined up under their favourite leaders, despising leaders like Paul who seemed weak and foolish, and instead embracing leaders like Apollos who, Acts 18 tells us, was eloquent, knowledgeable and persuasive. In short, they were a proud church. They were boasting in people instead of in Christ and his cross. And, and Paul recognises that their proud boasting and their divisions 
Well, they're symptoms of a deeper problem, a misunderstanding of the gospel, a misunderstanding of ministry. And as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, he's corrected their understanding of the gospel, their failure to keep the cross as the foundation and centre. We've seen in chapter 3 that he's addressed their failure to understand Christian leaders as servants. And in this passage, we'll see how he applies those truths to cure their pride. But we see his summary at the end of this passage in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. So how do we avoid becoming a proud church? How do we avoid becoming a proud church? Well, the first point this morning, we must stop bringing worldly wisdom into the church. We must stop bringing worldly wisdom into the church. Here Paul returns to his argument from chapter 1. Uh, there you remember he argued that worldly wisdom was in fact folly because God in his wisdom had overturned it through the cross. And in contrast, the foolishness of the cross, which was foolish in the world's eyes, was in fact the wisdom and the power of God. And now Paul applies that to how the Corinthians are thinking about their leaders. Look at verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. See, Paul is saying we all need to make a choice between the wisdom of this world and the foolish message of the cross. We, we can't have both. We can't think, oh yes, I'll follow Jesus and I'll be wise in the world's eyes. I'll, I'll embrace the cross and I'll be accepted in society. To do that would be to deceive ourselves. We must not deceive ourselves to think that worldly values, worldly wisdom, and the gospel of the cross can coexist peacefully in a church. Now we must deliberately disown worldly wisdom. We must become fools so that we can embrace true wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. We must embrace what is foolish in the world's eyes so that we can become wise. In God's eyes. And that's because, as we've seen throughout these opening chapters, God's wisdom is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of the world. Carson puts it very well. He says, what the world judges wise, God dismisses as folly. What the world rejects as foolishness is nothing less than God's wisdom. The world lumps power and prestige God displays himself most tellingly on the cross in sublime and wretched weakness. Yet that weakness affects God's utterly breathtaking redemptive plan and thus proves stronger than all the world's strength. The world pants after strong leaders, but leaders in the church must first of all be servants of the Lord Christ. The world parades its heroes and gurus. Christians remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies so that no one may burst before him. The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than content. The apostles of Jesus Christ prize truth above style and quietly refuse to endorse any form that may prove so attractive, even diversionary, that the centrality of the gospel truth is jeopardized. See what he's saying? He's saying that worldly wisdom and the foolish wisdom, God's wisdom of the cross, they cannot coexist. The values of God, the values of the world, are opposed to each other. 
Verse 9 puts it succinctly. The wisdom of, of this world is folly with God. Do you see, we must embrace God's values over against the world's. We must stop bringing worldly wisdom into the church. And, and Paul quotes from the Old Testament in verse 19 to reinforce this point. Verse 19, he says, For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, perhaps the Corinthians were looking to the Old Testament, like the book of Proverbs, to argue that embracing worldly wisdom was actually a good thing. And Paul reminds them of an aspect of Old Testament wisdom teaching that perhaps they had conveniently ignored. And that is, uh, yes, there's God's wisdom, but there's also a worldly kind of wisdom that God opposes. The quotations remind us also that this kind of worldly wisdom is actually rooted in pride, where, where, where people think that they know better than God. So in Psalm 94, which he quotes here, a few verses earlier, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. And we see a similar thing in Job chapter 5. Yes, godly wisdom is important. God wants us to seek it. But there's also such a thing as worldly wisdom, which actually opposes God, thinking that we know better than God. And God will bring it down. We must understand the difference between true wisdom, God's wisdom, and proud worldly wisdom, which is in fact folly. And therefore we must stop bringing worldly wisdom into the church. Well, Paul makes his application uh, in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. See, if we embrace God's wisdom, point two, we'll stop boasting in human leaders. We'll stop boasting in human leaders. Now, after all, we saw last week that what well, leaders are only servants. So instead of boasting in, in the servants of Jesus, we're to boast in the Lord Jesus himself and what he has done. We're to boast in God and the powerful working that he has done through his Holy Spirit, since after all, he's the one who grants the growth. And Paul adds a further reason here in verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God. See, as we, as we boast of one leader over another, we forget that God has blessed his church with many leaders, with different roles. Leaders like Paul and Apollos. Remember what Paul said in verse 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So how silly it, then it is to say, look, I'll just have this lead, I'll just have Paul, or I'll just have Apollos, because he's the best. When God is at work through all of the leaders in their different ways to grow his church. Yes, different leaders have different gifts and abilities, but they're all God's gift to his church. None is to be despised. To value one leader over the others and ignore the rest is to then just Deprive yourself of what you may receive from the rest. See, it's folly. 
But Paul reminds us that the blessings we've received, well, they extend far beyond just our leaders. Verse 22. The world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He's saying as Christians, we've been abundantly blessed in this life and in the life to come. We, we don't need to fear death. Uh, we don't need to fear the world. We don't need to fear our present circumstances. We don't even have to fear the future because we are in Christ and Christ rules over, over all. And then he adds in verse 23, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Whatever blessings belong to us, well, we belong to Christ and Christ submits to his heavenly father. So in the end, God owns everything. God deserves all the glory. And so then, how foolish to boast about our leaders, or our gifts, our influence, when on the one hand, we've already been given much more, and on the other hand, we all belong to God. Well, surely this speaks then against the tribalism that often marks different denominations, where Christians of one tradition refuse to mix with Christians of another. For example, brethren, Baptist or Anglican who uh, refuses to interact with other Christians but will only ever be involved in activities that's run by their own denomination. Now, of course, that's not to say that every denomination has an equal grasp of the scriptures or they're equally living out the gospel. But we must always remind ourselves that we're Christians first and whatever denomination second. Otherwise, we, we risk the kind of factionalism Paul is talking about here. All Christians belong to God, no matter what denomination they belong to. So stop boasting about human leaders. Well, that brings us to the final point. Stop wrongly judging human leaders. Stop wrongly judging human leaders. In chapter 4, he now returns to a point he made in chapter 3, that Christian leaders are servants, not celebrities. Servants, not celebrities. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, there is always a temptation for the Christian leader to slip into a worldly way of thinking about themselves and their ministry, to, to care uh, what everyone thinks about them and to make every effort to appear successful. I certainly feel that temptation from time to time. Now, at the same time, perhaps we, they then sit in judgment over others that, that don't seem as successful as, and gifted as them or jealous of those who are. Now, recent decades, I think, have seen a troubling rise in the number of celebrity pastors leading you know, vast megachurches of many thousands. Now, of course, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with uh, pastoring a big church. And, and, of course, it's not just megachurch leaders who are in danger of uh, seeing ministry as a, a, you know, a career ladder to climb to success. It can happen in any church. It can happen in any denomination. But I guess often the reason that celebrity pastors emerge is because how, of how they're viewed by the church. See, as we begin to accord Christian leaders a level of allegiance and honour and respect and praise that actually we should only be given to Jesus, then 
what happens, what emerges is a celebrity culture in the wider church where we esteem certain celebrity pastors over and above our local pastor. And that leads to the local pastors craving for the same kind of success that they see in these successful pastors. And so what emerges is a worldly pattern of competition and striving like you would see in any workplace. Against all that, Paul says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 5? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. See, we should always remember that all Christian leaders are just servants. Their job is to serve Jesus. I mean, we're all to serve Jesus, but Christian leaders lead us in serving Jesus. Their job as they serve Jesus is to help people give their allegiance, their honour and praise to Jesus, not to themselves. They are to fade into the background. And the Apostle Paul is a great example here, isn't it, as he instructs the church how they are to see him. He says, look at me, the Apostle Paul, just a servant doing his duty. If you're a Christian leader listening today, are you drawing attention to yourself? Or in humility, are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you searching for success? Or are you trying to glorify his name? Verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I guess in this verse, Paul also explains how Christian leaders are to serve Christ. Uh, that is, by being faithful stewards of the gospel. That's what Paul means here by stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, Christian leaders like Paul are stewards of the gospel that has now been revealed in the New Testament. They've been entrusted with the responsibility of faithfully preserving the gospel as they pass it on through their preaching and teaching. Christian leaders are servants who pass on the gospel as they preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so in verse 2, Paul lists their job description. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. See, what God requires of stewards of the gospel is faithfulness, not fruitfulness. Faithfulness, not fruitfulness. To be faithful to Jesus. To be faithful in proclaiming the weak and foolish gospel of the crucified Christ. It's not about the results, but the motivation and approach. Now, of course, in most cases, we do expect that as we preach the gospel faithfully, it will bear fruit, that people will be saved and be growing towards maturity. We, mean, we must not artificially divide faithfulness and fruitfulness. There is certainly a place for reflecting on how we can do ministry better so that it will be more fruitful. But it's God who gives the growth. And so what is required is not results, but faithfulness. The measure of, of the success of a ministry is not how many thousand are in the congregation or how many churches have been planted or how many people they've led to Christ, how many conferences they've spoken at and so on and so forth. But have they been faithful? Have they faithfully preached the gospel? Have they faithfully lived out the Christian life? Have they faithfully equipped future leaders? Have they faithfully passed on the gospel? 
Uh, right now, our diocese is in the midst of rolling out a series of KPIs to evaluate how churches in the diocese are going. And of course, it's not wrong for us to have goals, is it? And it's not wrong to measure how things are going and look for areas of improvement. Those are wise and good things to do. But at the same time, as, even as we do that, we need to be careful, don't we? That we don't adopt worldly models to assess Christian leadership. To evaluate Christian leaders purely on the basis of KPIs. You know, how many sermons they've preached, or how many leaders they've trained, or how many evangelistic courses they've run. It's fine to measure those things, so long as we recognise that they may or may not be an accurate measure of someone's faithfulness to Jesus. Verse 2, moreover it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So finally in verses 3 to 5 Paul explains that in the end the judge that Christian leaders must answer to is not their congregation or their bishop or even themselves, but only Jesus Christ himself. I mean after all they are his servants so they answer to him. So Paul says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now this is so different, isn't it, to the kind of people-pleasing that's often a feature of Christian ministry, where people are so concerned about the opinions of the people that they're serving that they rather forget the Lord whose servants they're meant to be. And, and so, uh, as they uh, seek to please people, they bend to the will of the people, setting aside the will of God. We must always strive to please Jesus, not to please people. Interesting, isn't it? It mattered very little to Paul what the Corinthians or anyone else thought about him. Now, he knows that it's not man that he has to answer to in the end. Whether or not we've been faithful servants and stewards will not be dependent upon a popular opinion or even our own opinion. Now, whether those we serve idolise us like celebrities or they think that we're a miserable failure whether we ourselves think well of our ministry or we constantly dejected and think we're failures, well, it's ultimately irrelevant. In the end, we will be judged by Jesus, not by man, not by ourselves. Now, of course, we must not misapply these verses. It, it doesn't mean that leaders can just arrogantly ignore feedback from people or disregard the concerns of the congregation. A wise leader will heed the advice of others. A loving pastor will care for the needs of the congregation and will listen to their point of view. And the fact that leaders ultimately answer to Jesus, it certainly doesn't mean that leaders can just do whatever they like with no accountability from the congregation or the wider leadership. There is a place for discipline of leaders, and Paul himself speaks of it in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So there's a, there's a place for accountability of Christian leaders, 
And indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will pass judgment on a sexually immoral man. In chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says that Christians are going to judge the world in the future, so how much more should they judge the things of this life in the church? And so the fact that Christian leaders are finally accountable to Jesus, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how they live now. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable now in their church. Now, as for Paul, verse 4, he says he's not aware of anything against himself. It's quite obvious. He sought to act in good conscience before the Lord and before men. But in the end, the only judgment that really matters is Jesus. Not others. Not ourselves. Jesus alone is the one to whom we must give account on judgment day. And so Paul concludes in verse 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, the church is to recognize that ultimately Christian leaders are servants of Jesus. Therefore we must leave the final judgment to him. He's the only one that has all of the information. He's the only one who sees truly into our hearts and knows our secret motivations. He's the only one who can know whether we've been truly driven by pride or by the grace of God. And so Paul says, don't be hasty to pronounce judgment. Recognize you don't have all the information. Leave the final judgment in the hands of Jesus. It seems the Corinthians were quite happy to write off some leaders they didn't like because they preferred others. They were rather in danger of taking Christ's place as judge and perhaps we're tempted to do the same. One of the things I've always been taught in Christian ministry is to assume the best of people until there is evidence otherwise. But Christians, I find, tend to do the opposite. They assume the worst of people and they become harsh, critical, and judgmental, even though they don't really know the person's true motivations. We must always remember, we don't know the whole story. We can't presume to know the, the motives of those we're judging. We must be very careful, therefore, about pronouncing judgment without the facts. Only Jesus can do that. On the last day, we'll stand before Jesus' judgment throne. Jesus will evaluate our lives with full knowledge. And he will say to these Christian leaders, to each one of us, either, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Or he will say, you wicked and slothful servant, cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must leave the judgment to Jesus. But Paul expects that most times for leaders, it's going to be positive. Verse 5. It says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Well, let's conclude. How do you help a proud church? I guess we've seen three key points today. First, we must stop bringing worldly wisdom into the church. We must make the deliberate decision to view life through the lens of the cross instead of worldly values. 
Secondly, we must stop boasting in human leaders. We must recognize that God has given all leaders to his church. All leaders belong to the church and all the church belongs to God, which leaves no place for arrogant boasting that one church or one leader is better than another. And thirdly, we must stop wrongly judging human leaders. We must recognize that Christian leaders are servants and stewards who are ultimately accountable to Jesus. They're servants, not celebrities. They'll be judged on their faithfulness, not their fruitfulness. They'll be judged ultimately by Christ, not men. So what about you? Are you tempted to be proud of your church? Proud of the leaders? You know, as the newcomer comes in? How do you talk about the church? Why? Or are you judgmental of others? Do you have a critical spirit? Make comparisons? Look down on others? What is the antidote to pride according to this passage? Come back to the foot of the cross. Embrace God's wisdom. Adopt a cross-shaped view of Christian leadership. They're God's servants. Cast aside all worldly alternatives and leave the judgment to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have blessed us so abundantly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for giving us all things, whether the present or the future, life or death. We want to pray that you would forgive us for the times we have been worldly in our thinking and proud in our hearts. Please forgive us for the times we've boasted wrongly about our church or other leaders and so look down on others. Please help us, Lord, to, to view our leaders rightly as servants and stewards of the gospel. Help them to be faithful in their ministry. We pray that we may all receive your commendation on the last day when we stand before your judgment. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray.